Welcome to the Shape Notes Podcast. On this episode of the Shape Notes Podcast, we speak with Batsi Madzwanga, a pioneering design leader who has been shaping experiences across the globe for over 15 years. Batsi currently serves as head of design at a top bank in the Middle East, where his team's work touches the lives of over 1 million customers daily. Through our discussion, Batsi shares his career journey. We explore his process for advocating user-centered design at strategic levels, best practices for organizational design leadership, evolving design cultures in the region is his influence. Basi also offers valuable advice for aspiring designers, highlighting the importance of exchange across borders. I hope you enjoy learning from Basi's diverse cross-cultural experiences on this episode of the Shape North Podcast. Hi, Batsi. Welcome to the Shape Notes Podcast. Hey, Jabula. Thank you for having me. Awesome, man. I'm glad to talk to you. Um, so I'm just going to go ahead and jump into the deep end. Um, so whenever we've heard about AI, uh, the initial thought was that uh, blue-collar jobs would be the first to get hit. Uh, but now, from what I'm seeing, the tide has totally shifted. And it seems that with the rise of ChatGPT and other generative tools, it is the creative jobs that um, looks likely to be hit first. Um, so my question is, what should be the order of concern when it comes to AI replacing jobs? And what should people involved in creative uh, professions do to mitigate the impact of AI? Yeah. Besides praying, of course. <laughs> yeah, prayer never hurt, right? yeah sure. Uh, yeah i think i think you're right so i saw it and i've spoken about this in the past online on like other podcasts how it affected me early on this year when i was hiring for a writing position like a ux writer and the issue was yeah i only could hire one writer um that's all i had the the head headcount for um, and that writer was going to have to do everything, which, uh, you know, inevitably creates a choke point with the output for, for my team, right? And then ChatGPT, like you're saying, came out, and then all of a sudden, all these AI writing tools and et cetera came out. And then I realized that if I onboarded a, a um, generative AI tool for our writing needs, then that equips each of my designers with the ability to write um, content that was good enough for what we needed uh, without having to hire someone. So it's a real life example of how like AI did actually, I guess, take someone out there's job because I would have hired uh, someone instead. Uh, but having said that, it depends on the scale. Um, so my team isn't a big design team. Uh, we're currently about nine to 10 people. Um, so it, it is possible for us to, to do that, but there are other design teams that actually need a team of writers. Like my, my team before, uh, I joined where I am, we had three writers in, in our team. Um, so yeah, it, I guess it depends on the scale. Um, you find that writers are using these tools to, um, help them with their own workflows, right? So that they haven't been replaced but rather their, their efficiency and output has actually been increased because of the AI tools. Um, so, so there's, there's the one thing. So that, that's, that's like the writing. So in my, in my world, there are two 
um, two creative outlets, I suppose, writing and actual design. So I would say that's how it's affected writing. Uh, in terms of design, the tools aren't mature enough to re completely replace designers. Um, if anything, what they've managed to do is in the same way they're increasing efficiency and uh, creative output for writers, it's done the same for, for designers. Because now if you need illustrations or um, stock photography or even just concept ideation, you can use AI tools to help you as a designer to do that. So it's actually helped uh, my team specifically like save costs when it comes to the amount of stock photography we need to buy because with a commercial license, you can just generate all the images you want, um, you know, and, and it works really well. So it's actually enhanced our workflow rather than, you know, threatened our, our livelihoods. So in the short term, I think we're, we're okay. I would, uh, the advice I would give is just learn how to use the tools to your advantage rather than, uh, you know, cry foul when, when the tools actually emerge. If you learn how to use the tools to be a problem solver, then you're 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 much better for it. Awesome. So, can you maybe speak um, to the specific tools that you and your team are using, if you if you can, of course. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So we've got uh, for writing, we use uh, Copymatic, uh, which is a content rewriter. Specifically, that's what we it does a lot of things, but we use it for copy rewriting. So we we ideate the content and then we use it to improve the content. Uh, and then we've got tools like Midjourney for generative AI for images. Whenever we need um, to come up with a quick concept or generate some stock photography for for our workflow, then we can use that. Um, but it's in ad addition to traditional uh, platforms like Shutterstock, uh, iStock, etc. So we're not exclusively using it. Uh, it's more like in addition to. So how would you encourage maybe, um, you know, upcoming designers or anyone who's in a, in a creative space to use those tools? And as you have mentioned, um, they not only, so there's, there's another side to it where a creative or a designer in this case can use that to augment their work um, yes. and, and make their work better. How do you encourage them? Is there any specific way? that they're supposed to be able to use the, uh, the tools um, that could, uh, you know, make their work better. Yes, yes, absolutely. So I think at the moment, it's really about just learning the tricks of the trade, I guess, and learning what the platform do, what they're capable of, because um, they really do do a lot. And I think you, you might have heard a term called prompt engineering that's been floating around the internet um, over the past couple of months. Yes. So that that's essentially like how do you actually leverage um, the correct use of prompts to to generate anything and everything you need. Um, so yeah, I, I would say learn the tools. There are certain like magic prompt formulas um, that are out there. So like one example that that I use is you define a subject. And then an action or emotion that subject is is um, performing. You define the atmosphere, lighting and mood, the composition of the scene, 
and then the style and technique you want the generative AI platform to to output the the image in. So that's like one example of a magic pump formula, um, right? So subject, so, so action, in, atmosphere, lighting, composition, okay. so, style. So in other words, we could be using the same tool but get um, different yeah. output. Exactly. So what's the what 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 does that difference in approach? Um, how does that impact the output? You know, is there a drastic yeah. difference or is yeah. it like a marginal difference when you use a, a slightly different prompt or word or yeah. whatever that may be? There's, absolutely, there's a, a very massive, uh, there's a massive difference for sure. It's just like with, with Photoshop. If, if you and I are, are given a task to perform in Photoshop, I've been using it for like almost 20 years now. Um, so I can perform a yeah. task faster and with better results than, than probably you would because you, you haven't used Photoshop for that much, right? Or, or have you? <laughs> I'm making yeah. an assumption. Definitely. <laughs> no, no, it's definitely not 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So like if, if it's the same tool, yeah. um, but we're, we're using it at, at varying levels of uh, not only complexity, but craft. Right. So it's the same thing with prompts. It might seem trivial just to type in monkey jumping on the moon. Um, right. So that's that's like the basic level of prompting where you just type in whatever comes to your mind. Um, but when you actually start to plan um, and engineer your prompts in a way that's that's at an expert skill level, then, yeah, the results speak for themselves for sure. OK, I see. So um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh... Um, you know, BJ Fogg's uh, design model? I am not. Okay, okay. Um, so maybe just to briefly explain it. So so basically, it, it suggests that uh, for a behavior to occur, you need uh, three factors which must align. So that is uh, motivation to perform the behavior, uh, the ability yeah. to successf- successfully in- enact it, and a trigger that uh, prompts uh, um, uh, the the user to to or or rather the prompting is then when the motivation and the ability meets that enables to u- the user to carry out that action. Yes. So exactly. um, this model is used by designers and it uh, it kind of uh, provides a useful framework. Uh, for those that are seeking to encourage uh, specific behaviors in order to, you know, simplify actions or motivate people to, um, you know, to to do certain things. So, um, so this is just one model that other designers use, and so it was uh, it was basically um, coined by this guy called uh, uh, Dr. B. J. Falk, and. In his class, one of his uh, famous students, uh, Tristan Harris, is now, I think, the founder of the um, social, I'm forgetting the the organization, but uh, he also, one of uh, the other famous student was uh, the founder of um, Instagram. So the point is, what, what, do you have any sort of philosophical um, or models or approach that you take when uh, implementing uh, design? Yeah, that's, it's, it's a very interesting question. And you find that a lot of the times this stuff will, will start to come naturally the more, you, the more you, you actually engage in design. 
because on yeah. when like when we're working on projects or features or like journeys on the ground um a lot of the research we do is is aligned with with some of those philosophical approaches that, like if if we if we were to call them that or like uh, maybe yeah. we would call them design approaches yeah sure right so so for example um I would say for for us because I, I work at a bank, a lot of the stuff we do is tends to be data led. Um, so that's usually the first place we go, right? So we try to we say we we say a lot um, at work like we, we make data data driven design decisions, um, yes. and a lot of the times that that really helps us get over the the initial curve of you know what do we need to do and what problem are we solving, um, right? Then when it comes to actually the, the UX process and the, uh, the design process, typically we try to follow some semblance of uh, design thinking when we're trying to solve the problems. Yeah. Um, because we, we typically work in a very like agile manner and, and we churn stuff out really quickly. Um, so we've started to adopt a varying degrees of design system or sorry, design thinking or design sprints to achieve the goal based on how much time we have. Um, so that yeah. I think for us, that's like the biggest, um, like the, our biggest uh, lever that we pull. So it typically it starts with um, design thinking workshops with stakeholders or um, at, the, at, the, at work, we call them design huddles, where you hash out all the requirements and what's required. And then you iterate on a solution until you're ready to test. Uh, then we test with customers. And then once it's actually ready to, um, to go into journey design, that's when some of the um, design principles that you, 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 you just mentioned kick in because they're varying ways of solving a problem uh, or, or different ways of solving a problem, right? Um, so for example, basic heuristics um, you know, things like, um, uh, how, how can I describe this? So one way we try to do it is bake in these principles within our design system. Um, cause typically we don't have a lot of time to, um, to think and iterate and research, um, cause the, the, the deadlines are quite, um, quite small. So we try to bake in yeah. rules when it comes to like uh, defining the proximity of stuff on, on the screen and how customers perform an action from uh, one, from the beginning to the end, like in a journey, typically those decisions we, we've thought of before and bake them into our, not just our process, but our actual design system. So how you space sections together, how you build components and um, actually compose your journey is we try to bake that in inherently into our process and in our design system. So that when we're, um, when we're in a bind trying to get a journey out, we make less mistakes uh, because our system is built on uh, sound foundations, I guess. Could you maybe uh, take us through one uh, project that was particularly interesting uh, to you, especially on the, when you were still doing the, you know, the discovery, the design thinking, um, is there any in particular that uh, that comes to mind? Um, there is, there is. So 
we were trying to build a feature that was family focused. Um, and at the heart of it, the, the, the insight, I guess you could say, was uh, in the UAE where, where I work and live, there's, there's a really strong family component. So like in the Arab culture, the family unit is very strong um, to the point yeah. where people actually live in like, I guess you could call them compounds, right? Where their uh, mothers, fathers, uh, maybe sometimes even grandparents all living in the same compound, your brothers and sisters. So we're trying to build a feature in the app that leverage the power of that construct. So how do we yes. take the family unit um, and offer something of value to everyone in the, within that unit, uh, but not, not only that, use that unit, unit as an acquisition engine. So if we get one member of the family, how do we then incentivize that person to be our evangelist and go out and, and get us more customers within the context of, that, of their family unit? So it was a very interesting, interesting project because a lot of the stuff that we, we came up with uh, resonated well with, with the people we tested it with. And even though we started, like, typically we, we, we start with some kind of assumption. Um, this is one of the times when yeah. that assumption held true um, because a lot of the innovations we came up with to gamify the experience, um, to reward um, referrals, um, to get kids engaged and actually get kids to be our biggest evangelist because typically like in a family setting if if a child wants something the parent will will give it but if they can't give it without having the product themselves then you automatically hook the parents uh, as well um, so it was very it was very fascinating to see like that dynamic play out and um all within the context of like an, a mobile app I can't give specifics, NDA issues, but the general gist yeah, of it was sure. That. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So uh, while you're speaking, I also kind of picked up some of um, uh, what Fog uh, details in his in his model. And one of the things that he talks about, this is my reading of of, of it. So he talks right. about like if there's more, there's greater motivation um, to do something. Or, or, or maybe let, let me say this: if if the the task is simpler to do, there will be greater motivation to do it. So that that kind of came to my mind when you're talking about you know gamifying the whole experience. So what what simplicity what 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 role does simplicity play in design? Because a lot of the times um, we often think of it uh, in terms of complexity. I know that's a that's a major element, uh, you know. But what 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 role do you think simplicity plays in 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 design? Yeah, that's a that's a good question, and I think simplicity for for us and what I do is uh, again I'll, I'll break it up into content and design, um, yes. and then the third one would be experience. So just the way you craft your content, a lot of the times I find, especially in financial uh, products. Like I, um, I've been working in financial services design for a very long time now, pretty much my whole career. Um, so you find like in, in a banking app, your content is just as important as the experience a lot of the times. Yeah. So your content design not only has to be like on brand, um, but has to be, you have to try and simplify legal and financial jargon 
to to a point where anyone from any background can understand it, yeah. which can be a little bit complex within the context of the UAE, given um, like over 80% of the people here are expats from all around the world, like over 120 countries. Um, so these, these are all people with different languages, different cultural backgrounds, obviously. Um, so they, they don't all have the same understanding of of like the nuances of English or, or Arabic, right? Even Arabic, they're different dialects. Like Egyptian Arabic is different from local Emirati Arabic, is different from Lebanese Arabic. Um, so all these things come to play. So you now have to simplify your content to make sure that it resonates with everyone I've just mentioned. Um, so that's that's a critical part. And then obviously you have the design itself. Um, cognitive overload is something I've always tried to avoid. So whatever is shown on the screen um, needs to be well thought out and needs to be intentional. Um, like save the pixel, I, I would say, right? So don't don't do don't try to do too much. And what I typically try to do with uh, the designs that I work on uh, with my team is just leverage on on foundational on a strong foundation. Like the stuff um, that we we tend to gloss over um, are, the, are the things that I really focus on. So if your typography foundations are sound, your color pairing, color theory is sound, um, then, you know, your design becomes timeless. Like I, I, I try to avoid going with trends and th design trends and things like that because I, I want my design to be timeless, which then in turn um, not only keeps it simple, but it then resonates with anyone who sees it because we're not trying too hard and we're not trying to follow uh, specific trends from specific places in the world, right? Um, and then the last thing is the experience. Uh, this one is key, obviously, because you can have a beautiful design, but if it's a complex system, it's not going to work. Yeah. Um, so typically what we try to do is, yes, you design if you're designing a journey with, say, for example, 15 screens, it's good to look at the totality of that experience and try to make it simple. Um, but you also need to look at each screen individually as its own system, which comes back to um, how we design our system and components and um, UX patterns within our design system to make sure that if you're using certain things and like comparing, um, sorry, uh, if you're combining components together on a screen, that a micro system in itself is is not complex. So as you pile on the screens, the um, sum total of that is a simple experience. So just being mindful at every step of the way, like keep it simple. Um, don't try to to do too much with with too little. You know. Yeah, isn't it interesting? Like when you're a consumer, you you don't really think that you know. You just you just kind of assume that things are just kind of clumped together. And, you know, yeah. but you don't really think that there was like a, a thinking put towards, you know, where the logo is and where you're supposed to click and, and all those other things. So um, you also mentioned, uh, you know, you're talking about obviously your work shaping uh, user behavior and, and the user's experience. So what, what are some of those? Um, what are some? Obviously, there are ethical considerations that rise when. You're trying to, you know, balance your business goals and and the the, the needs of your users. 
can you maybe share an instance where you faced a, a challenging uh, ethical dilemma while working on a, in a project and how you're able to navigate you know this tension between the project's objective and on the other side your the ethical considerations um, can you yeah. maybe share what what insights you gained from from that experience yeah interesting so I guess for me, my career started like in reverse, right? I, I started with, um, I started my adult life running a business with, with a friend of mine, like a design studio. Yeah. So I basically started um, on the business side, not the design side, um, right? Yeah. So I have a lot of empathy when it comes to what it takes to actually run a company, um, you know, turn a profit, and at the same time, keep your clients and customers happy. Um, so, so that when it comes to framing it as an ethical dilemma, I have empathy for both the customer and the business itself. Um, yeah. I, I, I remember in this year's config conference, um, there was the, the, the first uh, speaker spoke about how design without business is just decoration. Uh, the VP of design at, at Netflix. Yeah. And I, I, that really made sense to me because that's how I've always looked at it. Like if, if your company isn't doing well, that doesn't help you, your customers either, right? Uh, and if customers are super happy, um, but the stuff you're working on is doesn't make any business sense to, like, to the bottom business's bottom line, then it's, it's a short-lived uh, victory for, for the customers from the customer's perspective. Because they're going to get emotionally invested in a business that has no longevity, right? So there's a there's a balance you have to make. And as I now like move into design leadership for the past two years, I'm now actually realizing exactly what he said, like design without the business side is, is just decoration. Um, yeah. Business needs are just as important as, as customer needs which is a bit controversial because as designers, we've, we've always been told that the customer's right, you know, customer first, do everything customer and user centric in uh, all those things. But if, if you don't have a robust business um, and a strong business case for the stuff you do, then you're not really helping the customer in, at the end of the day. So there's like yeah. a, a delicate dance you have to do. So I, I can't say I have an example that where I've had an ethical issue because like I said, my, my career started in reverse. So I've never okay. been in a situation where business is trying to push their agenda and I'm in a corner saying, oh, but you know, you're messing up the customer, uh, which is unethical, et cetera. It's always been, where do we find the balance, right? If, if you make the customer happy, the business thrives. If the business thrives, the customer is happy. So it's almost like a closed loop system. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, it's interesting you mentioned Netflix because Netflix and you know your Netflix, your Google's, your Facebook, they're often at the center of this controversy when it comes to ethical uh, issues around their, <laughs> right, around their right, products right. and how you know they're addictive and all of that. But I think you you put it um, very well that at the end of the day, their business they're supposed to be um, you know they are offering a service so. What, like you said, needs to be done, I think, is to create a win-win situation where the business is meeting its objectives and the users yeah. are also happy, but also, you know, in this case, maybe 
uh, consuming content in a in a healthy way. So yeah, I think that you're, you're, you're spot on. There should be some sort of balance. Maybe you can take us back to uh, your own journey as a designer and, and how you got to where you are today. Yes, sure. So I, I've always been a designer. Um, like uh, often people ask me, how did, how did I get into design? Uh, it's more like I've always been a designer. So, so maybe uh, before you, 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 um, you proceed, like uh, are designers uh, born or made? Maybe you can, you can start with that. Good designers, average designers, amazing designers. What what kind of designers? Because <laughs> we can't generalize, and, and that okay. it's, it's, it's can't answer that question. Like, let's general. talk about like good designers. Good designers, are they born or good made? Good designers uh, are both born and made. Yeah. So so, if we expand your question a little, right before before yeah. I go into my back back story, um. So in, in as with everything, design designers are in a spectrum. They're the ones that are in it because they're not very good technically, right? Yeah. So they're not good at sciences. They're not good at uh, commercial subjects like accounting, et cetera, which requires maths. Um, they're in design because that's what they do. And typically, you know these people because they're the ones that say, oh, I hated maths at school or, you know, yeah. coding is so difficult. I can't wrap my head around it. Those are the people that, you know, are pixel pushers, um, which isn't a bad thing. I'm just categorizing them as this is who they are. So when that person goes home and gets home, what are they doing? Probably things that are not design related because design for them is a job, right? Yeah. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, you get people like me who for as, as soon as I could hold a crayon, I was drawing. Uh, when I was six, I was creating comic books. Um, by the time I was at university, uh, sorry, at, at high school, um, I was drawing characters and, you know, um, um, drawing whatever I could from like cartoons I watched. I was always drawing to the point where like my 10,000 hours of expertise I probably gained that by the time I was like nine because I was always drawing. All right. So I've always been a creative. And when I get home from work, what am I doing? Um, designing. Whether I'm drawing or working on a personal project that's design related, that's what I do. Right. I, I can't picture myself doing anything else. So those two designers are different. One um, is, I guess you could say I was born to, to be a designer, I guess you could say. Yeah, um, but you get other designers that um, are actually classically trained because I, I I didn't study design either. Um, oh, okay. But you get other designers that are classically trained, went to school for design, and reach the same level of craft as I have, um, because it's something that they love doing, right? So it's it's such a mixed bag that it's hard to answer. Like, because um, I've I've met people that come from architecture or not even architecture, because that's, that's like a creative field. People that come like from a um, cabin crew on an airline that go into UX and, and UI design, and they thrive because there was always something in them that was like in the back of their mind, creative, um, yeah. that they're now using design as an outlet for. Uh, but 
to answer your question about my how I started. So yeah, I always been a designer. Um, so that's why I chose to um, to do computer science in university. Uh, because even though I was uh, a designer at heart, I was also um, very good with the technical stuff like math and statistics and coding and that kind of stuff. So that's the stuff I needed someone to teach me so I can become better at, which is why I chose computer science. Um, but I also realized that you know technology was the future, so I wanted to be something, be in an industry that was uh, future-proof. So that's why I chose computer science. Um, I then found the product design career route because it's it's basically a marriage of the two, my two um, loves, I guess you could call them, which is yeah. coding and design. Um, so I'm able to to flex both muscles every day at work, which is which is amazing. So that's why I got into into product design. That's awesome. So, um, just to take you back a little bit, like. How, you, how did your African uh, parents react to you uh, drawing all the time? Or, because, you know, um, yeah. So how, how did they how did they react to that? Yeah. Were they supportive in any way? Did they nurture that uh, passion or interest? What was the, um, what was the response from, from your parents? Yeah, we, we, we're blessed that we have, like, amazing parents. I mean, there, I guess part of the reason I... I had the eureka moment with art is because my dad used to draw a little. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm currently writing a book on, on design. And I mentioned in the, in the beginning of like the first chapter, how I got into it. And I'll never forget the moment when my dad um, uh, was trying to spend time with us as, as dads do. So he sat, sat me and my sister down with uh, like a blank piece of paper um, and he drew, you know, that classical African scene with like the hills, the sun, a river yeah. running through the middle, like maybe a hut. So he drew that yes. scene. Um, and then the footnote at the end was a little V, curvy V shape that represented a bird. And yeah. when he did that, it struck me, right? Because everything else he'd drawn on, on paper was pretty complex geometrically, right? So it's like curvy, long curvy lines to make a river. You're combining like a few shapes and lines to make a hut. Um, clouds are made up of a lot of curvy lines. But when it came to the yeah. bird, it was just like a simple V. And that struck me even today. Uh, that's why I'll, I'll never forget that moment. Because that's when it clicked for me that all art was, was just putting the right line in the right place. Um, and that's where my, my, my love for, for the art form started. Because it's like we were talking about simplicity before something so simple um there were no feathers no beak no eyes no feet no claws nothing but you could still recognize that it was a bird um and i felt like that's a really powerful medium um so that's how my my love started so it was no surprise i guess to them also i guess because it's something i was good at it's very easy for for parents to support you if you're good at something right yeah um so yeah my, my parents have like have always been supportive even to the point when uh, they paid for three years at UCT in South Africa to study computer science. That was not cheap, yeah? yeah. <laughs> so and they funded it all by working hard and, and you know funding my studies, even to the point where I graduate and I say, I'm not going to be a developer, I'm going to be an artist. 
<laughs> right? They still yeah. supported me. They never said, are you crazy? We paid all this money. You need to get a job as a d- developer, right? They never said that. Um, they supported yeah. me all the way. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a reason why I, I put, you know, the uh, that that in there when, when I asked if you, your African parents, there's a reason yeah. why I did the African thing because, you know, sometimes we, we often think of real jobs as, you know, yeah. your engineering or... Or, or all these other like hardcore um, yes. occupations, but we never really think about it. We never really think of design and computer science and all these other things as, as at, le- at least that, that that's what I um, that that's that those are the sort of the things that I was uh, made aware of when I was growing up. Absolutely. Um, but Absolutely. but yeah, how do you how do you nurture you know that sort of creativeness in your own kids? Like, is there any specific things that you do? that um you know encourage your own kids to be you know uh, creative and and yeah and, yeah absolutely yeah. so <clears throat> there are a few things so if you ask my my um six-year-old daughter what she wants to be she says i want to be a designer <laughs> yeah <laughs> which i found amazing no surprise because... <laughs> yeah because i i think i i represent i represent that career path well enough for her to to think it's a noble pursuit yeah. Um, so I, I would say, like, to you know, answer your question, what do I do to inspire them creatively? Um, one of the things, number one, is I am passionate about what I do, and it it shows because when I get home, I'm designing, right? So if I was only yeah. designing at work, she would not have seen and known what design is. Yeah. Uh, right. So that's that's one. The other thing is I design stuff for her. So if she has a school project or um, they're required to do like some kind of arts and crafts thing, uh, that's when my, you know, my skill set really shines. So the quality of the output she gets and is able to take to school shows her that, you know, design is a, is a practical skill set. Yeah. Um, the other thing I do is in our book series, we started a, um, a book series for kids to help them learn Shona, especially kids in the diaspora, um, which incidentally we use AI for as well, like to generate all the cartoons and illustrations in it. Um, So I I involve her in that process. So like the book we're working on now is um, is completely her idea. So I asked her like, okay, so we're on book number six. Do you have any ideas for what it should be? And she came up with a really great idea. Like, let's make the character learn how to cook. Um, mm, and learn the awesome. Shona words that, that are associated with that, which is something I wouldn't have thought of myself, uh, but it was a really good idea. So now we're actually I'm involving her when we're doing the prompts for the cartoons and illustrations. Um, I ask her which one, because it generates four options. I ask her, which option do you like? Then she picks the one she likes and uh, she gives me feedback. I fix the prompt. So we're, we're doing it together and I'm trying to show her how to use tech, not just paper to, to be creative. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a lot of things, I guess. And some of them are small, some of the bit, some of them are big. Awesome. Can you maybe, uh, talk a little bit about, um, that particular project and how, how it came about? Yeah, sure. So I've always wanted to create a kid's book of some kind again, because I've been drawing all my life. Um, I am, I'm not skilled enough 
to create a illustrations to the level I wanted them because I'm not like um, I'm not an illustrator, right? Um, yeah. So that's that's the barrier, right? I wanted to create something that was world class quality, um, but I didn't want to be to pay an, an actual illustrator because that's like thousands of dollars to do that to, to the quality that I wanted. So when AI happened and mid journey happened and all of a sudden I could um, those those chains were literally dropped off overnight and I could literally create um, the highest quality level illustrations um, that I could ever want. Um, all of a sudden that barrier to entry fell off. So then the question was, what project do I use this new newly founded technology for? And then I realized that uh, my kids have been growing up out, outside Zim their whole lives. Like they, they've never actually lived in Zimbabwe. No. Um, and as such, they are a consequence of that is they, they're not immersed in Shona culture. Um, they're not, they don't speak Shona because at home we, we really, we don't really speak Shona that much. Um, and th there's a disconnect with their identity. Like who, like, who are we as, as, you know, as people, um, because they, 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 they don't have that connection with home. Um, and I noticed that she had a really big interest in learning Shona words. And every time she said something in Shona, her eyes kind of lit up because uh, yeah. I guess it comes back to that idea of identity. Um, it's amplified for us because we live in Dubai where, like I said, you're surrounded by like people from 120 countries every single day. Um, most of them not African. So you don't see black people that much. The people around here don't have the hair she has because they all have long flowing hair, right? Uh, from yeah. Filipinos to Indians to Arabs. Um, so it's, it's very isolating. And if you don't have that identity to tether yourself to, it can be very detrimental to your development, um, just of your character and your self-esteem and all that stuff. Yeah. So here yeah. was an opportunity for me to involve her um, and... We actually named the book series after her. it's called Ariana Learns Shona, and her name's Ariana, and the character herself um, looks very similar to how she looks. So we use that as a vehicle not just to give her an identity, um, but to to give her something to be proud of as as a Zimbabwean, and to at the same time then help her learn Shona words in a way that was uh, actually fun and engaging. So that's yeah. that's basically the, the the background. But then I, on top of that, I realized it's not just a problem that's unique to us, because there are kids in the, in the diaspora, growing up in the exact same way, like thousands of kids in the UK. Uh, we've got uh, a lot of relatives living in the UK, and their kids also don't speak Shona. We've got um, uh, siblings with kids in South Africa who don't speak Shona. Um, right. So that's, that's like my brother and sisters and my wife's brother and sisters, their kids, they're living next door to Zimbabwe, but they don't speak Shona, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a problem that's, that's, you know, all across the world with, with Zim kids living in the diaspora. So I thought, you know, if, uh, if I could help my daughter to discover her roots and connect her with the Shona language and culture, then I think this book series would be a great way to do that. So that's how it started. Awesome. Um, yeah, I think that's really that's really great. Uh, I've, I've also bumped into a couple of tools that 
um, are pretty much doing the same thing. Um, I believe there's uh, Rambo Academy. Uh, shout out to Chipo, Chido rather. So I think they're kind of doing the same thing, teaching people uh, African yeah. languages, etc. That's great. Um, so you, you're currently the assistant vice president and uh, head of designing experience at Abu Abu Dhabi Islamic Bank. Yeah. Um, can you tell us about how that uh, that role came about and and your work there? Yeah. So how it came about is <clears throat> is a is a great story actually. Um, that started with uh, my first job at a bank in Dubai. Um, so I I worked under a a design leader called James Palmer from the UK. He was my head yeah. of design. And when I left, he was approached for a another head of design position that he wasn't um, that he wasn't interested in. So he referred me to them. Um, so I interviewed for that role and I got it, which was my first time becoming head of design for for any organization. Um, yeah. So I then switched to to Abu Islamic Bank now, where where I'm head of design. Um, so it's it's like I guess uh, the culmination of a lifelong lifelong um, relationship with with design problem solving um, storytelling business development stakeholder management all the stuff that i've learned throughout my career um, kind of all culminate into um, me being equipped to become a head of design for for a large bank so that's how it happened the work we do is we're obviously a bank so we work on their banking, um, internet banking platform and mobile banking platform. So the app and mobile and internet banking. We have a design team that services the digital factory. So again, work on the on the mobile application and internet banking. So we um, we assist the different squads that build the features for uh, for the different streams on those platforms. So like um, on. Uh, Financing, bank account opening, um, uh, cards, and all that kind of uh, financial related financial services related products, we support them to design the journeys for that, and actually help the business sometimes to come up with products and ideas for for innovations and features. It's a relatively new thing for banks, especially in in the MENA region, to have design in house. Yeah. Um, so you find that we, and the nice thing now is everyone knows the value of great design. Um, so we're we're respected, I'd say, we within our, our peers and stakeholders, uh, from the perspective that they know that if we don't build a great experience, their their competitors are are you know, they're going to be left behind. Yeah. So we, I mean, that, we're, that, we're, that was. I mean, yeah, that was actually going to be like my next question because I honestly yeah. had never heard of a head of design, especially for for a bank, right? And right. Um, it's so you know, uh, I suppose my next question would be: How do you first of all, how can you maybe um, articulate why it's important, why design is important, especially you know in the sort of digital um, age? which at this point has been kind of accelerated by COVID-19. Because when COVID-19 happened, 
um, a lot of companies, uh, you know, when they were, if they had been ignoring the sort of digital um, landscape, they started, you know, taking initiative towards, you know, um, uh, different things surrounding uh, making their products digital or, you know, uh, increasing their online presence and so forth. So what do you think, can you articulate how important it is for, how important design is to 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 any organization and and why it's important maybe to have uh, an in-house design team yeah sure so so i remember the best way to answer this question is with with a statement from I believe it's nathan curtis where he he perfectly summed it up by saying like the last great experience your customers have becomes their their um, expected experience, right? It becomes their benchmark. That's the least they expect from a digital experience, uh, which is scary because the last best experience doesn't necessarily have to be in your domain. So if you're a yeah. bank, you're not competing with other banks from an experience standpoint. You're competing with the platforms that your customers use every day and interface with every day. So yeah. like, and, and we find them for the most part, it's typically social media platforms like LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, right? And uh, yeah. uh, now TikTok is, is up there. So you're, you're competing from an experience point of view with these things. And you start to realize like as bankers, like to your question, why is design coming in-house? They're starting to realize that we're, we're great at being bankers. Um, but we're not so great at building, like engaging customer experiences because that's a, a completely foreign and alien field to what, uh, you know, traditional banking is. So yeah. the role design brings is to elevate the digital experience for our organizations to the point where, uh, we start to compete with platforms that aren't even in our domain because that's that's what really we should strive for, to be the best, not just in financial services, like be the best experience, period. Um, yeah. Like benchmark yourself, especially if, if you think of like the peripheral things like onboarding, managing your platform, uh, customer service, and all those like peripheral things that are global, doesn't matter on, on the, what platform it is, like you, you're basically benchmarking against how does Airbnb do FAQs, for example, or how do how do if um, how does Airbnb do uh, dispute resolution with with their customers, um, right? So, how do we bring that in from a banking perspective and have an experience that's just as great? And all of these companies are investing in design much more than we are, right? Obviously, because like I said, it's it's a fairly new thing to have design in house at these companies. Yeah. Um, and so you're you're at the pleasure of learning from companies like Airbnb that have invested in design for over a decade now, and have designed teams with with hundreds of people in them. So yeah, so I would say that's the value, and it's very obvious now where like your business's success is it's inextricably linked to how well your digital platform performs within the context of, um, of your strategy going forward as a business and your bottom line. Um, yeah. it's, it's like, if your, if your app fails, 
and 90% of your customer base uses your app every day without having to go to the branch, if your app fails, then your branch infrastructure can't support it because banks, like over the past two years, they've been closing branches like crazy. Like, yeah. I guess it also accelerated by COVID now. Um, so if you have no way to serve your clients and your digital platform collapses, like what are you going to do? That'll cripple your, your entire infrastructure as a company and as a bank. Um, so it's really important now, like it's becoming more obviously important. Like banks need to really focus on digital. That's why you get like digital factories where I work um, starting to come up and banks now investing in having design in-house. And to answer your question about why have design in-house, it's more of um, not only protecting your IP, but also it's more cost-effective, more efficient, um, and in all those good words, it's, it just makes a lot more yeah. sense to have it in-house. Yeah, uh, and like you said, I think I like your point about it not just being a competition uh, between your uh, yourself and your industry peers, but also uh, all, all sorts of service because we're essentially living in an t- attention economy. So, you know, you're yeah. really fighting for uh, users' attention and sometimes they'll expect you to deliver the same experience that they're getting from Facebook and all these other um, things. Exactly. So, yeah, I think, I think you make a good point on why, you know, it's important to actually... Uh, be intentional about about the way you you design things, and I think also like maybe to my earlier point, it's it's also an issue of um, motivating certain behavior, right? So you wanna yes. want and going back to the simplicity uh, uh, point, you wanna create something that is really you know um, easy to use, but also appealing in many ways. So. Um, how how have you seen the the design uh, industry evolve, and and you know what challenges have you have you uh, faced as a result? Since you mentioned that you've been doing this uh, for for a little over fifteen years, yeah. So I've I've seen it evolve. <clears throat> so I started in predominantly print design, I guess you could say. Yeah. Um, things like flyers, brochures. Um, things like that, billboards. Uh, and then social media really kicked off and digital advertising like with Google really kicked off. Um, and we started to transition a lot more into design for digital rather than print. Yeah. So it was less book layouts and like brochures and magazine layouts. And now it is more social media post designing, website designing, um, uh, creating like ad campaigns and things like that online. Um, so it's, it's evolved from traditional media to becoming almost exclusively digital design now. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not that um, often you see a company, <clears throat> you know, designing and printing flyers. It's not cost effective. You'd rather put um, the, the $500 you were going to use to print flyers, put that on Google ads instead, right? You, your ROI there is much higher. So the evolution is now predominantly digital design. That's certainly where the best career path is now, um, certainly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's I guess that's that's how I'd say like I've seen the evolution um, go forth. What was your other question? 
Um, the extension was like the challenges that you face uh, as a yes, result exactly. of this uh, sort of evolution. Yeah, that's uh, yes. So the challenges, I think it's it's always just trying to stay abreast uh, with the yeah. change. Because um, now, like like we've been saying, there's now AI, um, but there's also now spatial um, spatial design with with Apple releasing their Vision Pro. Um, it's now made mixed reality uh, mainstream, I guess you could say. We've always had virtual reality. We've always yeah. had augmented reality. Um, but we've never really had practical applications for mixed reality. Um, so now what, what we're trying to do is trying to see, if, like from a banking perspective, for example, like um, a few years from now when Apple releases their vision, like the basic version of vision that everyone can afford, when mixed reality is now like an everyday thing, um, it's it's a completely different paradigm to to design for. Um, then you have Elon Musk, for example, working on Neuralink, which um, interfaces technology directly into your brain. Like, what does design for that look like, right? If you can stream Spotify directly from the internet into your brain, or watch Netflix in your brain. Uh, or control your phone or technology using your mind, or even transfer information from one mind to another, uh, right? Using Neuralink, yeah. all of that stuff. Like, how does design for that look like? Um, as we, again, Elon is working on like going to Mars, how does the economy of Mars look like? How does the software the astronauts use to get to Mars look like? If they're on there like uh, for like nine months at a time, once they get there, it's uh, it's a completely different environment to Earth, right? What 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 are their requirements from uh, like from interfacing with technology point of view? There are all these things to think of, uh, and it's all really powered by technology and how, how it's forever evolving and and getting better and better and you know even more controversial and uh, and all that. So. It's a fun space to be because the challenge is just to stay, stay motivated and stay interested and keep learning. I guess that's that's been the challenge I've had because uh, I I'm, I'm I guess I'm old enough to remember dial-up internet and floppy disks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and now I'm 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 still young enough to be able to be on top of AI like right now. So it's a very weird place to be. Like I'm old and young at the same time. Um, yeah. So the challenge, I guess, is just keep stay relevant. How do I, as Batsy, stay relevant as a design leader when um, I am the people that, um, you know, my team are like digital natives. Like some of them are in their 20s and they grew up with like as digital natives. And how do I keep them motivated and them inspired without seeming like I'm like I'm an old timer, you know. Yeah, yeah. Let's speak about about your team. Um, so what what is the process of assembling a great team? What 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 sort of things do you look for um, in 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 a, in, a, in a team member or in an individual that is going to be yeah. joining your team? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question, and and the way I always answer it is. It's a for me. It's a unique process um, because I've I've I'm I'm 37. I've been a designer for 37 years. Yeah. So 
I've developed a gut feel and almost like a compass for recognizing a great designer. It's 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 like an innate feeling that when I when I meet someone, I know if they're a good designer or not. It's a weird it's a, it's a weird thing, but that's that's my process. I just go with my gut feel because that's um, you know how I can find kindred spirits, as you'd call them. So to assemble a great team, the, some of the things I look for is some of the things we've been talking about. So like, how passionate are you? If you're not at work designing, what are you doing when you get home? Um, how much passion do you have for applying design to solve problems outside work? Um, how in tune are you with changes happening in the world from a design perspective, like the technologies that are emerging, how that um, how design applies to that? Um, how infectious is your energy? Because if you're passionate, um, that energy is going to rub off on your teammates. Yeah. Um, so so I, I, I want people that can that can energize the, the people in other people in the room just by their, you know, their passion for, for what we do. Um, an important one is how good are you at telling stories? So yeah. when you're explaining your design process and all that, like, can you articulate and sell me on, on the vision of it just by how you present your ideas and, and tell a story? Um, Cause at like with the stage we are now, most of our work is actually working with stakeholders hand to hand. Right. So it's design is probably like 20% of what we do. Most of it is yeah. just problem solving and stakeholder management. So if you can't convince a stakeholder, like we're saying, right, the balance between business and customer needs, if you can't convince a stakeholder trying to p push a business agenda, um, or if, if you, if you can't convince a, um, um, your peers that your design is, is well-founded and, um, is the right, right thing to do. Like it's, then you won't really, you won't be re a really effective team member or effective designer. So I would say like that, that ability to influence people and convey your design decisions in a compelling way is probably one of the biggest thing I, I look for. So in my interview process, I design it in such a way that I can, I can uh, get a measure of that. Th that being said, uh, I'm going to put you on the spot. Like, do you think yeah. you have a great team? Or how um, would yeah, you describe so, your team? Yeah. Yeah. So most of my team I inherited and both times I've yeah. been head of design, I was blessed enough to have inherited a great team. Okay. So I have an, an amazing team. Um, so when I joined, I've been there for 11 months now. Um, and I personally hired two extra people that also okay. have turned out to be uh, amazing. We just um, hiring someone now and he's amazing. So yeah, it's, 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 it could also be a consequence of the type of people that go into creative art forms and design tend to yeah. be um, great people just in and of themselves. Like the, it's a very small percentage of designers that are crappy people or crappy human beings. Uh, maybe, maybe that's a consequence of that. But yeah, my team is amazing. Um, so have you have you guys ever had like some some sort of uh, you know uh, uh, conflict or difference of opinion 
uh, within your team and and how do you how would you resolve something like that and and if you have how how did you resolve that yeah that's a good question so it's a, it's an easy thing to solve because our underlying mechanism for making decisions is data and yeah. um, customer interviews yes <clears throat> yeah usability testing so it's okay if they're two conflicting um, design you know patterns or, or approaches just go test them validate them with data um, as so the, the easiest thing is validate with data if you if you add an impasse after that then a B test or or present both ideas to uh, people within the office and as well as customers and there's usually a clear winner at the end of that yeah I think that's a, that's a better way yeah. of, of doing it. Um, and so... uh, the other thing I do is uh, when I'm wrong, I, I, I am the first to say I'm wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so just and how do, you, how do you do that? How do I do what? Say I'm wrong? Yeah. Like what? Just say I was wrong. <laughs> yeah, but like, what... what um, um how do you how do you come to that like do you is is it when you find out that you know um you when when you lose let's say you know you did the a b yeah. testing and, and is that how yeah so sometimes it's it's that sometimes it's just a google search away okay. <laughs> sometimes it's um you've looked at the data and i'll i'll give you an example so logging into a banking app with uh, biometrics like touch ID, face ID. Yeah. Um, it's instantaneous, right? So you would think customers would prefer to log in that way because it's faster. Yeah. So my educated assumption would be most of our customers use biometric uh, methods to log in because it's just faster. Yeah. I've always done it personally. That's how I've always logged into my banking apps because it's faster. I don't want to putting in a be putting in a password every time or uh, typing in a pin when I can just look at my phone and, and the app unlocks, right? Yeah. Turns out I was wrong. That assumption was wrong. Um, yeah. When we looked at the customer data, less than half or even less than 40 to 30% were using Face ID or biometric ways to log in, which I found really odd. And, um, um, you know, it's, I, I did not think it was, it, it wasn't intuitive. To come to that conclusion, um, yeah. so I admitted I was I, I wrong. Would, I wouldn't have guessed that. Yeah. So then the the issue then we we then had to ask ourselves questions: Are people not doing it because they don't know it's there, or like you then have to dig deeper and to actually find out the reasons? Is it even worth running a campaign to prompt them to use Touch ID and Face ID yeah. because it's easier, or is it? a more deep-rooted reason why they don't. Um, so you then have to kind of dig a little deeper. Before, Can you like, maybe share what, 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 what that discovery was? Like, why did people not want to use what is seemingly <laughs> a more convenient uh, uh, way of, of getting into their account? Yeah. So we, we haven't dug deeper into that one. We, okay. we currently have more pressing issues <laughs> than that phenomenon. Right. So I, no, I don't fine. have an answer now. But yeah, certainly sometime in the future we'll we'll get to the yeah. bottom of it. When we do part two of this podcast, I think that that will be the first yeah, question. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sure. 
Um, so how do you maybe still still on your team? Like, what what do, are there any specific strategies that you employ in terms of, you know, encouraging your team members and making sure that they um stay motivated and and inspired? Yes, so it's two things. Uh, the first thing is something that Gary Vaynerchuk speaks about. Um, and he, he always says each individual is different. Yeah. Uh, and what motivates us, um, not only is what motivates us different, but it also evolves over time. Um, so for some teammates, they might be motivated by money. Some might be, might be motivated by title. Um, some might be motivated by working hours and work-life balance. Some might be motivated by recognition from the from the business, yeah. uh, and the list goes on and on, right? Uh, and the only way I can know is if I talk to them at a human level once a week, sit down with them, and just find out how they're doing. How's your wife? How's your mom? How are your kids? Uh, you know, are you happy? What's going on with your in in your life? Uh, one example, for instance, when this. Um, uh, when this approach really worked was in my previous role, one of my designers was getting married and no one in the team knew. And it's only mm-hmm. after I spoke to him and, um, you know, during our one-on-one sessions, he mentioned, oh, by the way, I'm getting married. Um, and he's, his motivations completely shifted. So before he wanted to move to the UAE, he was based in India. Um, but now that he was getting married, uh, he was thinking of the future and decided he's going to move to Canada instead uh, and get on that citizenship, um, you know, track for for him and his future kids. He was not thinking of them, uh, which then meant he was thinking of leaving, which then meant I needed to think of a um, succession uh, strategy, right? Because we needed to replace him. And all of that happened because I just asked him. Right. He could have woken up two months later and just resigned, and I yeah. I wouldn't have seen it coming. Um, so just you know, speak to your team members at a human level, understand what they want for their careers, and what motivates them, and then you can um, have a tailored approach. And this is a luxury, obviously, I have because my team isn't a large team, so I, I can yeah. I can easily do this. So that's the first one. And then the last thing is, uh, or the second thing I, I do is just be a motivation myself. The way I carry myself, um, the things I do outside work, the level of excellence I aspire to and I represent, all of that yeah. needs to be aspirational. They need to look at me and say, you know, and be inspired just from the, the way I carry myself and the things I achieve and the feedback the stakeholders give us because... Um, because of the things I, I implement at, uh, within the design team. So all of that, I think, is, is typically how I, I approach it. Like, be the change you, you want to see in your team. It all starts with, with the leader and, and filters down. And I always tell them, like, um, the fact that I, I, it's another thing Gary Vaynerchuk says. Like, I work for them. They don't work for me. Yeah. Or I'm there to serve them. They're not like my subordinates. Um, my whole job is to make sure that their experience at work is a, is a positive and you know happy experience, um, which means I'm beholden to their their requests and their needs. Yeah, I think that's awesome. So, um, is there any advice that you would give to 
um, aspiring designers that are looking to build, you know, a successful career in in design, and and that's aspire to be where you are. Uh, what 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 advice would you would you give to to individuals like that? Yeah, it's it's a it's a lot, but I'll tr- I'll try to condense it into like three or four things. Okay. The first one that made a big impact on myself was uh, incidentally Tom Ford. I watched a YouTube video where Tom Ford was doing a makeover to a bunch of guys, and he said like one of the things because he's a, he's obviously a fashion icon, so he's. His comment and statement was more inclined with fashion. But he said, like, dress for who you want to be in five years. Like, if you are a a, uh, filmmaker, dress as if you're going to accept your Oscar. Yeah. Right? So, for me, it it made sense. Because if I ever wanted to transition from being just a designer to being in a position where I'm a design leader then the people around me need to see me in that light. Otherwise, how will I ever be promoted if people can't imagine me as that which I want to be, right? Um, Which, if you remember how I described I got into design leadership was my former head of design referred me, even though I was just a designer, he referred me to a company that was looking for a head of design, which is something he wouldn't have done if in his own mind's eye, he couldn't have pictured me in that position. Um, right, so maybe, it's obviously maybe, not just the way you dress. Um, you, you. Did did he, did he ever share with you why he recommended you uh, specifically? No, I never asked. <laughs> okay. I never asked, I'm but sure. I, I I have tried to think on on it and come up with my own conclusion um, that I can then use to to give advice um, to draw from and give advice from. But I never asked him. Okay, but I I think it's it's. It's the, the essence of it is he, he had to see me in that position um, and be confident that I can do the job. Because when, when you look at what's required as a design leader to transition from a designer, an individual contributor to being a design leader, it's yeah. two completely different skill sets. Yes. Um, yes, it's good to be a hands-on design leader. So even today, I'm, I'm still a hands-on design leader. I do do some of the designs in order to set the bar for my team from a craft point of view, I, I have to step up and actually show them where I want, where my vision, what my vision is, right? Yeah. So I'm, I'm a hands-on designer. Um, but my skill set is now more towards people rather than design. Yeah. So people in the sense that I'm a custodian of their lives and their careers. Um, so I have to, like we said, I have to inspire them. I have to motivate them in in all those things. Um, Then I also have to deal with people that are not designers from the business side. I have to understand um, the strategy of the business, um, the five, 10-year strategy of the business and how design can help us get there. I have to come up with innovations and present them to to senior management uh, without them. So basically, I have to be proactive, right? I have to manage yeah. relationships between ourselves and um, the different departments like developers, products, business, um, compliance, risk, all of those people that we work with at the bank. I have to cultivate relationships with them so that if we go come up with 
a suggestion um, that inherently impacts their KPIs and their bottom lines, right? Yeah. If I say move the, the transfer um, campaign banner from here to here, it's, it's, it's going to affect the, um, it's going to affect the conversion rate of that banner, right? So there, there's an inherent level of trust that they have to have um, within us to accept that change. So how do I how do I cultivate that relationship to the point where they trust us because they see us as um, as thought leaders within the design space, but also as as like masters of the craft that we're we engaged in. Um, yeah. And then there's the IT side as well, where we interface with developers all the time. So again, because I'm I'm technically proficient, I can have conversations with them about the code they're writing. We can review the code they're writing. Uh, recently, we actually came up with um, a pipeline for converting our designs, part of our design uh, system into code so that we can lessen their burden uh, while at the same time, um, uh, while, whilst at the same time making sure that the quality and output that we want from the design decisions we made is seamlessly transitions into code because we're actually contributing to that. Um, so yeah. it gives us ownership. So it's doing all of those things that are beyond being an individual contributor, um, I think yeah. is what you need to start doing even before you're in that position. And those are the things I was doing when I was a designer. I was going above and beyond my role as a designer to help solve other departments' problems um, not even design-related problems, just yeah. um, and also providing value beyond just design. You know, all of those things you need if you want to transition and if you want to grow in your career and if you want people to see you as more than just a designer, you need to do all of those things. Yes. So, um, you, so you'll be uh, you're, you're going to be speaking at. Um at the first Design Matters uh, conference that is going to be held in Nigeria. Um, first of all, can you tell us what the conference is about and um, what you're most looking forward to? Absolutely. So um, it's, a, it's a digital conference, obviously a digital design conference. And uh, the theme is, is really around like explore, exploring what inspires designers to to break ground in, in design yeah um just from i guess from a digital from a global point of view like how can african designers make a mark um from a global perspective yeah. um some of the themes are how can we make our designs more human for example um yeah and then they're also going to look at the scandinavian design philosophy and how that can be embedded within the African context to help us design more human products and more customer-centric products. Because Design Matters, awesome. it, was, it was founded in Denmark. Okay. Um, that's why they're, they're steeped quite heavily in Scandinavian design uh, methodologies and philosophies. So part of what they're doing is bringing that into an African context and helping um, that uh, ecosystem evolve based on like mature design philosophies that are in in europe yeah um what i'm looking forward to is just connecting because um i haven't i've really connected with african designers for 
uh, most of my career, I guess, when I, when I became, became a design leader, because it happened whilst I was yeah. out of Africa. So just going back and showing them that even though I'm, uh, I'm a black designer, the sky's the limit to what you can achieve yeah. if you can demonstrate the value you bring to the table. Um, so I always say um, in, in Dubai, where, where I live, in most of the companies I worked, I was like the only black person in the, in the yeah. entire company. And these are companies with like a couple hundred people. Um, you, you'd mostly get um, Indians, South Asians, like um, uh, Arab people, uh, obviously, yeah. because just where we are uh, geographically located. So I'd be the only black person. So I never thought that um, because I was such an extreme minority, I never really saw myself being able to to climb the heights of being able to to climb. Um, yeah. Uh, even now, where I am, I'm the only black person in the digital factory, the entire digital factory. It's crazy. Um, yeah, so it's, it's really. Yeah, it's it's crazy, and the why I'm saying that is. It's, it's a testament to the fact that there's there's no boundaries for what you can achieve, despite how you look, yeah. if you can prove that you can bring value. How you look and where you're from is irrelevant. And I've, mm-hmm. I've had people message me on LinkedIn from Africa, like black designers, yeah. who are becoming motivated because they've seen me do it and they know that they can do it too. Um, so going back to Africa, Nigeria, and actually um, going on stage and presenting my life story hopefully will motivate some designers that are in night in, in their cause to, you know, aspire to, to becoming more than they thought was possible. Yeah, that's awesome. I'll, I'll actually, you've answered my next question in, in detail. I was going to ask you if you are uh, traveling to Nigeria. Um, yes. But yeah, I think what, I think it's interesting that you mentioned, um, you know, the sort of Scandinavian philosophy, philosophy around design and so forth. Um, you kind of when you were speaking about like that that picture that your your dad drew and you're talking about the clouds and you know and you're providing great detail it just reminded me of uh, so I recently wrote an article um, that was exploring um, African like like fractals in African design so fractals fractals oh, yes. are, 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 yeah they're basically you know um, patterns that scale that 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 repeat themselves at different scales. So yeah, yeah. it's interesting I that. Sorry. I remember watching a TED talk on this subject. Yeah, yeah. I think it was uh, Ron English. Um, yes. Ron, yeah, that's yeah. that's the guy that 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 I also learned this from. Yeah. So I th- I think it's also just interesting how you know there's there's a wealth of knowledge or history that you know, we haven't really tapped into in terms of the sort of all, all these sort of sophisticated approaches to, so, you know, if you, I'm glad you listened to the TED talk, and you were just speaking about like how the, um, even the construction of the homestead was very, uh, was very detailed. So it wasn't by accident that you had like a, uh, you know, a homestead and then the, the chief's uh, house at the center of it, it was all, uh, you know, there was symbolism, there was a lot of mathematics attached to that and so forth. So, um, yeah, it's interesting to to just know that there's there's also that 
that side of things maybe maybe we could one day construct some sort of philosophy of african design um uh with batsy or something like that yeah so i'm doing that now so that's actually okay. the book i'm i'm writing and that's the talk i'm giving in in austria oh, in october um i'm creating a design framework called ubuntu yeah. design framework uh, which essentially because the, the the problem statement is what we're taught as the right process in design yeah. especially product design is typically yeah. not what happens on the ground um, just due to resource issues and time issues time constraints um, and and all, all those things that we, we we experience every day in in our professional careers like we can't do and yeah. go through the proper design process so we end up having like a very fluid design methodology that we use where we use different things at different times and leverage various expertise within our organizations at different times in order to come up with uh, an approximation of what we feel is the right approach for whatever yeah. feature or experience we're building. Um, and I, I started to find a lot of parallels between the idea of an organization being a community and how the Ubuntu philosophy um, and value system is geared towards um, having that holism and um, interconnectedness between the, the various aspects of community, not just people, but your environment, the animals, um, um, yeah, the, you know, your, 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 the ecosystem that the, the communities live in to your spirituality, all those things that, that make Ubuntu so, such yeah. a powerful concept within Southern Africa. I saw a lot of parallels between that and product yeah. design. So yeah, I'm, I'm working on that now. And what I've tried to distill it to is four pillars um, that start with the individual, the family construct, community, and then yeah. finally interconnectedness. So yeah, I'm going to bring that to the world stage in October in Austria, and yeah, let's let's see how Africa can contribute to. Definitely, to we're definitely going to be looking forward to that. Um, can you maybe share, you know, with us where listeners can find um, um, the the book? Well, not the book, but the 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 children's book. Yeah. So, and and, yeah. and where they can find you online. Sure. So very easy to remember. The kids' book is yeah. I love Shauna.com. So if you love Shauna, you're not gonna forget <laughs> the, the website. Yeah. I love Shauna.com. And online I'm just Batsy. So LinkedIn slash IN slash Batsy, you'll find me on LinkedIn. Oh. And my uh, website Madzonga. is madzonga.com. Awesome man. Um uh, it was good talking yeah. to you. Um, hope to have like a part two of this uh, podcast. There's so many things that I I didn't even get into that I, I would like to um, to talk to you about. But uh, a special thank you to you for for doing this. No, it was Thanks. it was fun. Thanks, Thanks. Cheers. It's been a pleasure.